Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the days when the judges were judging, there was a famine in the land. That is how this book in the Bible begins. It's a time of political chaos. The Philistines are pressing in on the boundaries of Israel. The Lord has raised up judges to help guide and shape and lead God's people. But the, by the time Ruth's story starts, it starts like this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Can you ever imagine living in a time where leadership was in question and everyone did what they thought was right? Thanks be to God. We've never experienced anything like that. And here, against the background of nation rising up against nation and, and leaders failing again and again, a famine on a massive scale, Scripture tells of a small little family with three ordinary people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Said so It's an ordinary story with ordinary people. It concerns the little hopes and the little dreams of a few people who easily could have been lost to the sands of time but for us, they are holy scripture. This little story tells us and shows us what Karl Barth called the simplicity and the comprehensiveness of grace. Or to put it another way, Ruth's story is prophetic. It's prophetic because it tells the truth of God and God's people. So let me tell you the story. Naomi and her husband are Hebrews from the little town of Bethlehem. Have you ever heard of it? Maybe, I don't know, maybe, little town of Bethlehem. That's where they live. And there is an aforementioned famine that hits the land, and they are forced to leave in search of food. They have to go to the land of Moab. And if you're a good Hebrew, you don't want to go to the land of the Moabites. So this husband and wife take their two sons with them into foreign territory, and they live there. And during their time, their two sons marry two Moabite women named Orpah and Ruth. And things are good until they aren't. In short order, all the men are dead. We don't find out how. We don't even find out why. They're just dead. So Naomi now is left in the most vulnerable condition possible at the time. She is a childless widow, and she has no grandchildren. She has no one to take care of her. She believes that she has been abandoned by God, and she says she has no hope in the world. So before we jump to the meat of the story, it's important to rest in the knowledge that this story begins in the dark. There are threats of fear and hunger and death, and they loom large over all the people in the story. So Naomi, being a good mother-in-law, urges her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. You don't have husbands. You don't have hope. I don't have hope. It's better for you to stay here. I'm going back to Bethlehem. Hopefully I can figure something out. Now, Orpah, she's smart. She says, I am done with you, woman. Mother-in-law of mine, I'll send you a Christmas card, but I'm ready. Back to my home people. But Ruth is a fool. Ruth inexplicably refuses to leave her mother-in-law. I hope all of you love your mothers-in-law as much as I love my mother-in-law, especially if she's watching this morning. <laughs> but think about what it might mean for you to abandon everything you know to spend the rest of your life with your mother-in-law. 
She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. This beloved text, I've had to preach on it, more weddings than I can count. To be clear, this doesn't make any sense in the world. Ruth chooses to align herself with hopelessness. She has every opportunity to seek out any other opportunity, but instead she wills herself to be considered among the last, the least, the lost, the little, and probably soon enough, the dead. So these two women, Naomi and Ruth, they return to the land of Naomi's people, back to the land of Judah, back to Bethlehem, and the famine has come to an end. But their situation as unmarried widows, childless unmarried widows, makes it such that they can't even have access to the newfound abundance now that the famine is over. But Ruth, living into her wild recklessness, volunteers to enter the, the fields to glean some barley. She takes on the mantle of a beggar with all the humiliation and all the danger that it entails. And that's when Boaz enters the story. You see, Boaz owns the field from which Ruth will glean some harvest. He catches her one afternoon taking what has been left behind by the reapers of the harvest, and he orders his men to take her and throw her into the outer darkness. Well, that's how the story probably should have gone, but that's not what happens. He orders his men to protect her, to make sure she has enough for her and her mother-in-law. Why does he do this? If this were a Netflix series, which for what it's worth, I think if you know anyone that works for Netflix, have, get, put me in touch. This would be a great 10-episode series on Netflix. If it were, according to Netflix, Ruth would be a beautiful young woman who catches Boaz's wandering eye. But that's not what Scripture says. Boaz is not captured by Ruth's beauty. He is captured instead by her fidelity, her faithfulness. So Ruth approaches Boaz, wants to know why he is treating her so kindly. And Boaz says, I know who you are. I know what you've done for your mother-in-law. I know that you left everything behind to become a stranger in a strange land. May the Lord bless you and keep you. So Ruth returns back to the house to see Naomi. She's got this bountiful barley harvest with tales of this man named Boaz. And Naomi says, oh, I know him. He's one of my kinfolk. I have an idea. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. Get dressed up, she says to Ruth. Put on that nice mini skirt. Put on some lipstick. I know what you need to do. The harvest is over. The men are going to be drinking. They're going to be having a good time. I want you to go there. I want you to find where Boaz lies down, and I want you to lay down behind him. PG-13 scripture, okay? So I want to be clear about that. This is bad advice. Braylon, don't listen to what I'm about to say. This is bad advice. You send a young woman, a young single woman into an establishment with such instructions. And yet Ruth, as noted, is already bold and brave and daring enough on her own. So she goes. She puts this plan into action. Boaz, having enjoyed the fruit of the vine, he goes to sleep and time passes and he wakes up in the middle of the night to this young woman from the field uncovering his feet. Ask Matt Horn what that means in the Hebrew scriptures. <laughs> now the details of what transpired next, scripture does not tell. All we know is that Boaz marries Ruth. They have a child and they name him Obed, which means worshiper. 
Naomi, now a grandmother, she rejoices. All the other grandmothers in town, they come over, they pass this little bundle of a baby around. They're all looking at this little promised child. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has given you this gift. May he be a restorer of life. And Obed eventually becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse becomes the father of David. Here endeth the story. Why do we tell this story? Why do we come to it again and again and again? I, sure, it entertains. It's got all the right makings of a powerful tale. It's got intrigue, mystery, love, maybe a little bit of lust, hope. But why do we dare to proclaim this as God's good news for God's people? Well, in part, I think we do because without it, there is no David. There is no king of Israel, no defeater of Goliath, no one to unite all of God's people. I think we also tell this story because it's a story about us. At every turn, there are choices being made that run counter to the notions of the world. Ruth chooses to remain in a hopeless situation. Boaz chooses to become a redeemer to a foreign beggar. Ruth and Boaz together, they become bearers of God's grace for a world that is filled with nothing but violence and destruction and pain. Our world, then and now, is full of famine and death and dereliction, a host of other evils. Often, like for Naomi at the beginning of her story, it can feel like God has maybe abandoned us. But then this story, which is our story, reminds us that God's blessings often come through the simplest and therefore the most profound means. When we reach out in love to help the other, it is the hand of God. When we forgive those who have trespassed against us, it is the mercy of God. When we are given hope in another otherwise hopeless situation, it is the power of God. When you're a teenager and your band director tells you that you're special and then has the gall to show up in worship when you're 33 years old, that is the voice of the Lord. Today, there are still systems that actively reduce people to being among the last and the least and the lost. Great famines are still made manifest every day by the powers and principalities that have no regard for our humanity. And then the church. The church can break the mold that continues to run in the world, all that devastation and destruction, with prophets. Prophets. Since the very beginning, there are those who are willing to care for and to reside among the most vulnerable. They did and do so because God aligns God's self with the least of these. We, the church, we have this opportunity to be a new kind of place, a new community where people are cherished, they are loved, they are cared for, they are listened to, where systems of oppression are called into question. The church is a place of stories. She has a story to tell, a story we receive. It's the story of God with us. So I've shared with you the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. It's a small story in Scripture. Here is the whole of Scripture in about 30 seconds. Time and time again, we reject all that God gives to us. We're in paradise. We have everything we could possibly need or want or desire, except there's that one little bit of knowledge hanging, dangling from that one tree, and we just can't help ourselves, and we have to eat it. God continues to bless us, one humanity on the earth, and we decide, you know what we should do? We should build a real big tower. Let's see if we can become God. God confuses our language, and yet God continues to bless us. 
God reaches out to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a new people through you. This is my everlasting covenant. I desire to bring all people into this new people, but Israel, like us, will have none of it. She is just as rebellious and foolish as we are. God gives them manna from heaven. God gives them the law. God gives and God gives and God gives. And what does Israel do? She worships at the altar of other gods. She moves from one bit of idolatry to the next. And yet even in the midst of all this ruin, captivity, exile, Israel receives the greatest gift of all, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, fully God, fully human, becomes all that God could have ever hoped for from God's people. The obedient and faithful child called out of Egypt, the new cornerstone of a new community made possible by peace and grace and mercy, the Davidic king who exists to care for the poor and the outcast. But we don't want that either. Because even though God has showed up, even though God has fed us from the multitudes, even though God comes and tells us parable after parable, what do we do when we meet God? We nail him to a tree. We kill him and then we bury him in a tomb, forsaken. And then you know what God does? Three days later, God gives him back to us. Jesus raises victorious not only over death, but over us. That's the story. That's the story that's worth repeating because it is a story that repeats itself. We reject God, and God is determined to elect us. We destroy ourselves, and God is determined to bring resurrection. We get all sorts of lost, and God comes and finds us. You see, in the end, that's what prophets do. That's what they do. They don't grow long beards like I have for this sermon. They don't exist to point out all the flaws in other people. They tell the story. Prophets tell the truth. They open our eyes to what we would otherwise miss. And Jesus, the greatest prophet of them all, is in himself the story for a people who have no story. So today when we read about Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, it's not so that we can hear them and go and be just like them. Hear me when I say that is not what you're supposed to do. Do not go home and put on your mini skirts and your lipstick and go down to the community inn and find your Boaz. Don't do that. Let me be abundantly clear. But this is a story for us about who we are. Because you might be feeling like Naomi. You might feel like you don't have any hope in the world at all. And perhaps God is using this story to say to you today, the time has come for you to ask for help. Or at the very least, accept the help that someone has offered you. Or maybe you're like Ruth. Maybe you're bold, you're filled with energy, and you don't quite know where to to put it. But maybe God today is saying, hey, there is someone in your life who needs hope, needs kind of some of that boldness you have. The time has come to take a step in faith toward that person. Or maybe you're like Boaz. Maybe you have been blessed to be a blessing to others. And God is using the scripture to say today, there are people in your midst who need your help. The kind of help that only you can provide, and the time has come to do so. Or maybe you don't identify with any of them. I don't know. Maybe you're not like Ruth or Naomi or Boaz right now, but I promise you at some point you will be. That's the beauty of story. That's why we keep coming back to the same stories again and again and again because every time we hear something new, something fresh, something we need. The story of Scripture is odd because we worship an odd God. I mean, consider this, God chooses to align such things that Ruth, this this foreigner with no hope in the world, a beggar, 
she becomes the great-grandmother of the great King David. And how odder that in the fullness of time, God chose to take on flesh in that same little town of Bethlehem through Jesus the Christ, the great restorer of all life, an ancestor of Ruth. All that we are rests on the story of the strange new world of the Bible. It is a story we recount week after week, year after year, because through it we discover who we are and whose we are. It is our story. So like the prophets before us, like the prophet that is Jesus the Christ, let us tell the story. Let us tell it when we are up and when we are down, when all is well and when all is hell. Let us tell the story when we are received and when we are nowhere believed. Let us tell the story till every sinner is justified until the devil is terrified, until Jesus is magnified, until God is satisfied. This is our story. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.